Queer Rights Sessions, QWS Podcast, in partnership with Blarney Books and Art in Port Ferry. I'm your host, Rob, aka RWR McDonald, and this is a Words and Nerds spin-off series. Thanks, Danny! I'm coming to you from the land of the Wurundjeri people, and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Each month, QWS Podcast will bring you reviews, shout-outs of LGBTIQA plus writers, and feature an interview with a queer writer from our rainbow communities. And now on with the show. Hello, my name is Jonathan Butler, and I am stepping in for Rob today. I'm the author of the non-fiction book, The Boy in the Dress, published by Affirm Press in 2022, and a proud QWS podcast alum. We are chatting with Ronnie Scott today. Hello, Ronnie. Hi, lovely to be here. Ronnie's first novel, The Adversary, was shortlisted for a Queensland Literary Award and the Australian Literature Society Gold Medal. He teaches creative writing at RMIT. His latest book, Shirley, came out in February of this year and was published by Penguin Australia. Now, for our opening question, it's a very broad one. It's how has your work influenced your identity? Oh, uh, <laughs> we go like, straight into the deep end. Yeah, coming, coming, <laughs> coming straight for the um, for the like existential bullseye. How is my how is my work influence my identity? I think I mean it's such a it's a very kind of surely question, right? Because this book is partly about um, you know the way this this uh, th- there's a woman at the center of the of the, the novel, um, the protagonist, and she you know, has this this very kind of quiet life, this very sort of centered, quiet life where she just likes to be alone uh, and she likes her routines and she likes the way that that um, that she walks to work every day from her apartment and then walks home. And then she comes to like um, working from home during the pandemic as well. And she doesn't particularly like her job. Uh, she doesn't particularly like the people that she works with. Um, but I think that she just likes the sense of structure and order. And I really like... Um, I don't know the way that writing, uh, when you're working on a project, as I am now, and as probably all you know, writers are always working on on something, um, the way that it kind of becomes part of your professional life, but it can also sort of like lash, you know, lash or drip its tentacles out, and it becomes part of your your sort of your dreams and your personal life, and um, you know, I think it's very very hard to separate questions of work and identity, uh, and I think that you know, in some ways that can be taken advantage of in different professional environments and situations. Um, and that's because work is so much part of part, like, you know, what we do is, is, is who we are in so many ways. And it also raises all these questions about what your inner life is and what your, uh, you know, what its relationship is to how you talk to people and how you behave with other people. Um, you know, the things that, that last beyond you or don't. Uh, and I think that that's true of of any work. So so for but you know I guess for writing you know you're putting putting thoughts hopes counter thoughts into sentences and so it can't help but be part of your identity. For the people out there who haven't read it or heard about it before, I'll quickly read the blurb uh, just to get everyone up to speed. Right. So it's been 20 years since her mother was photographed blood soaked outside the family home, a famous TV food personality. She fled the country. Since that time, the girl has grown up. She's bought an apartment, learned her own cooking style, fallen in love. She lives a quiet life, working as a copywriter for a health insurance company. She's found happiness, finally. But strange things are in the air. 
her easygoing boyfriend had started sleeping with men. Her mother is selling their infamous family home and a glamorous pregnant neighbour has moved into the apartment downstairs, calling into question everything the girl believes about her own desires. Among conspiracy, dubious loyalties and mercenary impulses, how do we work out who is worthy of our devotion and who is just a fan? Shirley charts a search for meaning in a world where the fracturing of ambitions, work and purpose, real estate and home, family and love has left us uncertain how to recognise ourselves. Now, I absolutely loved Shirley. Uh, there is just so much in it. There's corporate horror, actual horror, wild nights out that could go anywhere, strange neighbours, and not a single predictable relationship. It's also laugh out loud funny, so I really can't wait to get into it. Now, the first question I want to ask you is there's often debates about what makes a novel queer. So Shirley definitely has some not heterosexual characters. Wet on Wellington gets a mention. The <laughs> narrator's mother is described as a low-key camp icon. Um, but I think the spirit, the queer spirit of Shirley goes deeper than that. Yeah, because of all the queers that are in it. <laughs> no, I think it's um, more than that. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. I agree. I yeah, I mean, yes. I think um, I mean I would so so for me the the decision to write about this particular protagonist, um, I mean, I was I was thinking about her as a character in her own in her own right, as you end up doing when you're working with a character. Um, but I was also thinking about the fact that um, that I'm a gay man and that I like so much. You know, I I I it maybe sounds strange to say, but I feel very male and always have, and maleness has always been a part of. Um, you know, speaking of identity, uh, maleness has always been the the largest part of of my identity, and as a, a queer person, that's always been who I who I am, um, a male. But also, uh, I'm interested in the ways that that you know, when you say when you talk about work and identity, and I talk about sentences and identity, so much of of the way that I think about writing, uh, the lion's share of it really comes from women writers, uh, and this this guy I think manifests for other gay men, whether writers or or not, or in a writing context or not, in so many different ways, right? Like you could, I think that I I've always been kind of wary of talking about drag in the context of of this book because the art of drag and the the um, culture and associations of drag are their own specific thing that are very different from writing a female narrator. But I felt that I was doing something queer in writing her, I suppose, mm -hmm. and I think that I I was totally thinking about the way that the ways that gay men think about women and the way that the ways that that women um and gay gay men and the culture of gay men intersect um and i think that that, that i mean you can just do so can i swear sure go ahead yeah <laughs> i mean it's just, it doesn't matter now but i would yeah. <laughs> say you can do so fucking much with it uh and and you can and i think that uh yeah, I don't know that 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 the, the sort of the the tensions and the strangeness of of putting those things together, like mostly, you know, gay to buy men. The book is full of gay to buy men. There's a couple of straight men, I think, but but not many, uh, and sort of straight to to queer or straight to curious women um, are kind of the makeup of this book. Uh, and so I think that that that's just a wonderful and strange engine to be writing with and into. And also, I guess, if you think of queer like capital Q, I, the, mm. a lot of the relationships in the book aren't sort of the stereotypical heterosexual sort of conservative yeah. types. So there's that as well, I reckon. Yes. 
uh, yeah, like even the the relationships between men and women uh, are, I don't know, there, there's something, I mean, they're, they're pretty silly relationships, I think, like I, I don't take very many of them very, very seriously, um, you know, and I think that there's something, there's something queer about making uh, kind of relationships between parents and children and husbands and wives and uh, potential fathers of children and potential mothers of children um, into something that's kind of camp and transactional. Um, yeah, and and I think that uh, that everyone gains through, or I certainly gained um, in writing about those because I amuse myself a lot. But I also think that the more you can kind of uh, look at the absurdities of those relationships, um, the better you can understand them. I suppose the you know just seeing them from different angles and emphasizing different bits of them that we don't often emphasize or don't always emphasize. Mm. And one of those um, he relationships for our unnamed narrator is the mother, which is that uh, low-key camp icon. And look, I, I feel terrible to admit, but I've always been a very big fan of a villain growing up. I'd always walk away from Disney films loving the villain much more than the uh, sort of the pr protagonist. And I actually, there was part of me that really loved the mother. And it got me thinking, there's, there's quite a few mothers uh, in this book, uh, mothering and I suppose more accurate way of saying it is gendered caregiving. Um, so did you want to comment on that aspect of the book? It seems to be quite a big theme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I to, to be honest, when I started writing the book, I thought that the protagonist would be pregnant and that it would be the story of her pregnancy. I, I think why I mean, yeah, I was interested in that because I was just interested in parenting generally because I'm not a parent and I, I have no interest in being a parent, but it's a thing that, that um was happening a lot around me at the time, uh, as it tends to do. And of course, you know, it's a it it makes you see kind of the world around you differently and and kind of ask questions about the choices people make. And so I I think I was also just attracted to the idea of having a shape for the story. I was like, okay, it's going to be a nine month story. It's going to be the story of her nine months of this pregnancy. That's just kind of one of those things that's like the handle of the novel that gets you into it. And the more I started like talking to other people, parents that I knew um, and prospective parents and committed non-parents uh, and ambivalent non-parents, like I, I, I gave a lot of time over to, to just asking very like nosy and formal questions to people in my life who I knew more and less well about parenting. I, I came to realize that so much of these ideas that people have, um, whatever those ideas are, come from their parents. And so I was like, oh, okay, uh, I have to write about her mother. Like her mother has to be part of the story. And I always, I just, I just immediately kind of knew, because I'd been writing her, the protagonist for a while, but in this very kind of wheel spinny way, that's just about, you know, figuring out who she is. Uh, I was like, well, I, her mother's going to be ab absent. And then I thought, well, the thing that you can do with that is you can have that be the nexus of her, of some confusion or rage in her life. But I think what the, the more that I wrote her and the more that I wrote her mother, it's interesting to hear you say villain, because she says pretty early on in the book that she really likes her relationship with her mother. Um, she, I, you know, I think it, I thought it would be kind of funny for her to have this famous mother and to find out things about her mother, like from gossip magazines. Uh, and to have her mother kind of calling her at strange hours of the night because she's on a fucking cruise ship or she's, you know, on a shoot in a Eastern European country uh, or she's at, at a indeterminate location. Uh, and I like the idea that they would, I like the idea that they would have sort of privacies and secrecies from each other. But I also wanted her to 
be thinking about the advantages and the benefits of that um, and the ways that that that's something that she's okay with um, sort of there, there will always be I think tensions between um, a parent and a child in narrative as in life but I also think that uh, you know they run they run two ways one thing that I really love about uh, your books is the ever-expanding Ronnie Scott cinematic universe. Uh, there are a few Easter eggs, and I promise that I won't spoil them for those who haven't read, um, but there are a few secret character connections with your other book. Uh, Shirley by Charlotte Bronte uh, pops up a few times, um, and there's even meaning behind the colour, the cyan green of the book as well. So I'd really love to know about how do you build in these layers and can we expect your next book to expand on this universe even further? Uh, that's a cool question. I, <laughs> I, I should say as well, the way, part of the way that this happens is like without my knowledge, because the designer, Laura, Laura Thomas, who designed the cover of Shirley, um, you know, gave the design to the publisher and it had this kind of beautiful cyan green with red writing, um, you know, the word Shirley written in red. And I really liked it and, you know, made whatever small changes you make in negotiation with the publisher. And then about two months later, someone said to me, and I love how the cover is the same color as the coat that the mother wears that has red on it, like the blood. It's like, oh yeah, I've known that all along, but I had not, I just hadn't, um, I hadn't realized that at all. It was this cool, like amazing connection that she sort of brought out of the book. Um, but then also the, the cover, the photograph that ends up being on the cover of the book, uh, has these kind of objects in the background uh, and I wrote them into the novel because I had probably another month of working on it after the cover had been chosen. So that's like a yeah, tiny little, little Easter egg. I don't know. I think that's, I love the idea of a book as an object and something that, you know, where the graphics and the the blurb and the the, the copy can sort of match up in whatever ways. But you, you read the blurb before and there's a, there's like a, this weird kind of spoiler in the blurb that's not actually in the book. Like she's wandering throughout the book if her ex-boyfriend has started sleeping with men or not. It's always this kind of open question. And the blurb just says, her ex-boyfriend has started sleeping with men. <laughs> and I kind of like, only realised that later after we'd, we'd kind of come up with the, the copy for the blurb, um, me and the editor and the publisher. But uh, but I really like that. I like that it sort of says a thing that's, that's not quite in the book. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, oh, I knew that I always wanted a, at least a couple of characters from the adversary in this book to turn up in some way. Um, because I see them as like thematically related. I think that the voices of the two protagonists are not terribly dissimilar and I wanted her to feel a bit like an older sister to, like metaphorically an older sister to the young man in the adversary. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't know, they live in the same city and they notice the same sorts of things and um, that's just the way, the, the way that I write. It's a function of it being written by the same author. And so why not have a character come in? And I, I also, um, you know, Dan is a character from The Adversary who turns up in this book. And I just like the idea of him having a big rant towards the end of the story uh, and sort of bringing out some of the kind of hidden themes of the book as well. And I know it was a big question, but I also did uh, drop in uh, Shirley by Charlotte Bronte in there. And I did uh, pick up that that uh, not only is the name of the book, but that was mentioned in the adversary as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I, there was like a, a three-year crossover when I was redrafting the adversary and doing early drafts of Shirley, and uh, and there's an epigraph 
it's like the epigraph of the third section right. of the adversary, which is like, uh, you held out your hand for an egg and fate put into it a scorpion. And I initially thought that that would be the epigraph or one of the epigraphs from Shirley, but it just seemed to, to suit that bit of the adversary really well. So I, yeah, I kind of like having that sort of forward leading epigraph to the last section of the adversary. Um, Shirley is a novel by Charlotte Bronte, which is about, um, I mean, it's this very broad connection. I love Charlotte Bronte. Um, I actually don't love that book so much, but it's a, it's about a landowning woman uh, and the name Shirley, uh, and this this is mentioned in the adversary too, uh, the name Shirley was, it was mostly considered a male name before the book Shirley by Charlotte Bronte was published. And then her protagonist Shirley in that book popularized it as a female name. And I think for a book that, again, like broadly plays with and looks at gender a little bit and about femaleness and queerness and maleness, that seemed like kind of a cool connection to, to make. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been reading some of your reviews online and one of the big aspects that people respond to is the book setting. Melbourne is so vividly rendered, specific streets, train stations, parks, and the novel's action occurs uh, during the very uh, first few months of the pandemic. Between Meredith and Golden Plains in 2020, uh, when bushfire smoke was blanketing the city, but the narrator is actually telling the story in hindsight uh, through one of the many Melbourne lockdowns, months or even years later. I'm curious, um, how did that shape her perspective for you? Yeah, I thank you. I I mean, like I said, I've been working on it for a few a few years while I was still finishing the adversary uh, and just like trying things out. And I knew that I wanted to like, I didn't when I when I abandoned the idea of the of the pregnancy and the shape that the automatic kind of shape and structure that would give to the book. Uh, I just wrote it for a long time, not knowing what I was doing. And I, I decided that there was going to be that summer where I was going to peg it. I was going to peg it to that summer, um, which was at that time coming up, uh, like the summer of 2019, 2020. So like, I'm going to use that as the frame and the shape for the book and I'll sort of tie it to some real life things and that I'll use that to kind of redraft and restructure it. And then it turned out to be this very weird summer, obviously, because it started with the bushfires and it ended with like the intimations of the pandemic. And then I uh, like redrafted it over a couple of years, which were the six Melbourne lockdowns, um, sort of 2020 and 2021. And so just in this very natural way, like it's, it is set over that summer, most of the events are, but she's also like at the coming out of the sixth lockdown and she's kind of thinking back on that summer and thinking, well, probably like many of us did um, or are still doing in different ways, thinking, ah, that was an incredibly strange time where so much happened and so little happened, you know, especially in, in Melbourne, which was so defined by lockdowns uh, and, you know, for a comfortable inner city um, white woman as well. Like so it's it's defined in this very particular way that's very, very different from other populations, but also really different from other cities around the world. Right. And it's this sort of null time uh, and a time of, uh, I guess, rumination rumination is kind of the, the vibe i wanted it to have sometimes i wanted it to have this sense that she's like thinking back over this this time which is very like fresh but also so far away um because this very particular sort of expansive time has passed between that summer and when she's thinking about it a couple of years later and i want her to be able to think i wanted her to be able to think well, what the fuck was going on there uh and to be sort of you know, a little bit haunted by the events, which are fairly normal events in lots of ways. Like the things that happen in in that summer are that a woman moves in downstairs 
she ends a relationship that hadn't been working for a long time. Um, she goes to a music festival. She goes to a somebody else's office Christmas party. Um, but you know that a lot a lot of the puzzle in the story is like who are these people and what do they want and what do they what do they mean? Mm, yeah, um, fascinating. So it's a thinky a thinky time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I was um when I was reading it, I was trying to spot any sort of I guess it probably was a time where the our mental clarity wasn't as sharp and maybe we felt things a bit more acutely. And I, I did wonder whether, you know, the fact that she'd been trapped in her one bedroom apartment for months might have impacted her sort of thinking about, you know, because she does think even further back, like, you know, obviously her mother left her when she was 14 and, you know, relationship to um, Shirley and the people who, the staff at Shirley. And yeah, there's, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She's, a, she's an unspooling um a bunch of a bunch of stuff like yeah and it does kind of mirror the way that people have a kind of ego death sometimes in that in in a lockdown or uh, or that they do in a crisis I, I think um yeah I I should say as well that I was I was uh trapped in a I lived in a small one-bedroom apartment but it was kind of different from hers um I lived in the the suburb that she lives in uh at the time I lived in Collingwood and so I had like was thinking a lot about the the local area and the sorts of things that she would see and the, the walks that she would have and threaded that through the book. But also um, my partner lived at the time in a one bedroom apartment that was like a five minute walk away from my place. And it sort of had the same sort of um, open air landing that she talks about a lot and the same sort of view of Victoria, the trains at Victoria Park Station. And I think I, the reason that I made that her apartment or a version of that into her apartment rather than mine is that his apartment was kind of my escape at the time. So, you know, you, you, yes, it's a book about, um, about confinement and a lockdown, but, you know, writing a book is sort of a fantasy and writing this protagonist who's, you know, similar to me in some ways, but different from me in others, that's sort of a fantasy. And so setting it in my boyfriend's apartment, which for me was the place that I was allowed, legally allowed to go and sleep at, at you know, on a Friday night during the lockdowns. Um, you know, that, that there's an element of fantasy and escape in all of those things together, even though they are about this kind of quiet time. Human relationships with animals is another big theme of the book. Uh, it's in the epigraph. Uh, Meanie the cat is a big character. Uh, many of the characters are vegan or run vegan food companies. Do you think us humans can learn a lot from our four-legged friends? Yeah, yes. I think we, I mean, this is another weird thing about the the framing, I guess, of the, like with the bushfires at the start of that summer and the pandemic at the end, like COVID is this obviously global crisis and has an enormous amount of, of death and uh, and in many ways you know the experience of this protagonist mirrors mine in that it's very insulated from from many aspects of of um you know the mortality of COVID but at the same time we have this bushfire at the start of or this bushfire season at the beginning of that period where uh like I think eight billion animals die of some absurd figure right which is like this unimaginable figure and we've like constantly kill billions of animals and and have you know in in our lifetimes in or, uh in in our lifetimes billions of animals have been killed right and so it's uh I, I was interested in the scale comparison there and like having some animal some animals in the story like there, there are animals at so many points in the story um there's an there's an animal in the story at that at the point where her mother 
leaves the country, like I guess without without spoiling it. Um, animals, animals play a part. Um, there's the veganism, and all these characters are thinking about uh, about ethics in some way. Uh, and veganism is is not just like a a pure ethical position in the book. It's something that people use to shape their own desires or express their own desires in different ways, whether that's to do with animals or health or lifestyle or work um, or uh, proving that you can cook in a different way to your mother or whatever the case may be for different characters. But also there's this cat Nini and uh, at the start of the book, David, who's her ex-boyfriend, just loves this cat. Uh, and it's he's this, this old cat uh, who has sort of just been neglected a little bit by um, by the people who live next door to the share house that David lives in at the time. Um, and then later in the book, um, Mimi sort of comes into the protagonist's life in this different and unexpected way. And I just really, I, I guess because she's such a, um, like a verbal character and at, like not as in she talks a lot throughout the book, she's a very quiet character, but the book is told through her eyes. And so you're always relating to her verbally and she's very analytical, um, but, uh, she's thinking about, you know, the worth of different lives, I suppose. Um, she's thinking about that in relation to class, especially. And I like the idea that there was going to be this kind of unaccountable life that comes into hers and that sort of makes her think about desire and sensation and uh, the unconscious because animals, you know, whether we can learn something from them or not, um, I think that they... Uh, you know, the presence of an animal either makes you think really directly about the fact that you're an animal or it makes you like totally resist that and like, you know, invent all of these ways that you're not an animal. Um, we're always thinking about ways that, that we're different from non-human animals. There's a, a bit in the book where she sort of talks about like these particular animals that are always singled out for their intelligence, right? Like people are obsessed with the stories about uh, you know, the bird that can ask a question uh, or the octopus that remembers certain people and not others uh, can sneak out of its tank in certain ways and not others. Uh, and I, I kind of find those stories really telling and really suspicious for the way that they allow us to have, you know, some animals be special and have identities and not others. Um, when, you know, we, we have, we know and have always known that animals have consciousness and feelings and, um, and you know, whatever, value we ascribe to one life you sort of have to ascribe to another. I think also Meany ties into that question that I asked earlier about the gendered caregiving because it was actually the protagonist's ex-boyfriend who was the one who wanted to look after the cat but ultimately it's the protagonist that comes through and I think even she says in the book um, you know draws the parallels with her mother and I guess that the idea that she wished that someone could have done that with her um, was was that something that you were trying to do? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Thank you. I, I, uh, as some someone pointed out to me as well that um, it kind of makes sense that the protagonist would want meaning because everything that she wants uh, or everything that she loves belongs to someone else, which is not something that I'd consciously thought of. But that's kind of true, right? Um, I sort of love the fact that uh, like she finds meaning with this cat uh, and she is able to give the cat a home, but ultimately like. The, the cat is loved by by another person who can't take the cat. So even in that sense, like her fulfillment uh, is kind of something that that uh, would more rightly, in a way, belong to to a, to another person who just you know by uh, by circumstance or structural the structural circumstance of the plot can't do it. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that I was thinking of her as mothering the cat so much as I was thinking about her mothers and the cat. So that's sort of a, a weird way to put it. But the epigraph of the book comes from this. Uh, I'm not going to quote it because I'll, I'll screw it up. But uh, but it comes from this book called The Tribe of Tiger Cats and Their Culture by a writer named Elizabeth Marshall Thomas. And this is amazing book that I read about um, about cats and their culture. Uh, but I, I got that that the, the quote is is from this particular bit of the book where um, she's she's talking about about uh, how like she's using it to illustrate how little we we know of 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 animals and our relations with animals and there's this you know this thing that, that people talk about all the time of like what's happening when a cat comes and brings like a dead mouse to you like drops it at your feet uh, and there's this sense that it's you know giving you an, an offering um, that it's that it's showing you what it's done but she says well when a cat does that with a kitten um what it's doing is it's it's you know trying to teach that kitten a lesson um it's it's trying to teach it hunting or play behavior and so there's this kind of poignancy and sadness in this idea that that we always assume that where the where the parent and the cat is the child um or where the teacher and the cat is the student um but you know, she's kind of sees this cat, the cat as this frustrated pedagogue. Um, and, I, and I should say that I, I got like that reading of that chapter from uh, a book by Eve Sedgwick, uh, who's kind of using it to talk about pedagogy. But I like the idea that that um, it's about like whether, you know, the, the cat can be can be the parent. Um, so she sort of is is kind of taking this cat in and you can kind of think of the cat as a cat and you can think of it as her and you can think of it as her boyfriend or you can think of it as a child but you can also think of it as her mother now i've got a broader question uh what is your hope for shirley now that it is out in the world <laughs> great question yeah it's a it's a weird question to uh, to think about right now because it's been out for uh, well, th this is May when we're recording this, and it came out in February, and I'm kind of like still occasionally doing something, you know, like this nice conversation with you, but also I think, um, I mean, speaking of parents and children, like a book is unlike a child in many ways, but one of the things that you have to do is kind of think about your relationship to it when it's out in the world and how it's different from the relationship that you have with it when it's just all yours. Um, and I think there's this period where, it, you know, after it's been published, it still is in this weird way, all yours, because you're talking about it all the time and think and and always thinking about you're suddenly thinking about other people's impressions of it. And that has to do with you as a writer. And you're always, you know, you're being called on as a writer to to think about it um, and, and, you know, articulate your thoughts about it. But now I think I have to, like, decouple from Shirley a little bit and have this different relationship with it. And. Uh, I'm writing something else. Um, I'm writing a nonfiction project, and I'm sort of trying to like uh, to have that be my life and be the thing that controls my thoughts and wakes me up in the middle of the night. And um, yeah, and to just like have Shirley be something else, be this this thing that that just does whatever whatever the fuck it does or whatever the fuck it wants. Um, that's different different from my hopes. Amazing. But and so I guess what, what you're saying is now it's out in the world, it belongs to other people. What what are some common uh, responses that you get when people come and speak to you. I know that uh, when I'm speaking to people about my book, they often come and reflect on their experiences and, you know, their family and their relationships. So I'm, I'm curious to hear if that happens to you as well. 
Uh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, people people see different things in it. I mean, the thing that I that I really have enjoyed about the responses. Um, I was like very like defend. I don't know don't know what you did with your book, but uh, but I was like super defended with when it was published, and I decided that I wasn't going to read reviews for six weeks, um, and so I felt like I was just you know blissfully and a little bit anxiously floating through the world, not knowing what people's responses were, and then when I read them all sort of all together, which which was this really good idea, and I think I would always do that again with with future books. Because you sort of context, you know, contextualize any one thing that someone says about it with other things that other people have said about it. Uh, people read it really differently, and some people focus it focus on it as a pandemic book, and some people think about it as like a queer book. Some people think of it as a cat book, and some people think of it as a book about like a, a, a bad mother, which I I find interesting. Like I don't see her as a bad mother. I Even with the say, abandonment. <laughs> um, yeah. She wanted to go overseas. It's yeah, like, yeah, I know, I know. And I did say that I was a fan and, you know, there is part of her that, you know, she had this goal, a dream, and she just went for it. So I guess in that, <laughs> when you look at it that way. <laughs> yeah, she just she just had to leave her in the care of her biggest of her biggest fan. Uh, I know, I, I think that there, there are probably things that, that she's done that you could fairly call bad mothering. But also, I think it's more interesting that people are interested in whether she's a good mother or a bad mother. Um, than actually deciding whether she's a good mother or a bad mother. Yeah, I've been like pleasantly like surprised by the the different like the plurality of readings people have. And now we have Joe from Blimey Books and Art and Port Ferry with our book review. Hello, Joe. Hello, Rob. And what book do you have for us today? Well, today I have a book called Other Names for Love by Taymor. Sumro, a Pakistani writer who's, I think this is their first novel. Right. And uh, what's it about? Okay, so you've got a boy who's living with his mother in, they're in London from memory. His parents both decide that he needs to go to Pakistan and experience some time with his dad and maybe toughen him up a little bit. He's a little bit of a sensitive young lad. So he has this summer in this fictional town of Pakistan called Abad, where his father takes him and shows him a more masculine side to life. He learns to shoot and uh, sits in on political meetings and all sorts of things that are going down. His father's a landholder, so there's a lot of conversations about land and ownership. But while he's there, he meets a young, another young person uh, called Ali, and he and Ali start having adventures together and it becomes a an unforgettable summer and they end up having a close connection. But immediately after their fling, they get separated and the boy is sent away again. So oh, sent back to his mother. So it's a coming of age? Yeah, coming of age novel. It's broken into three parts and that first part is when he goes to Abad and meets Ali, then uh, the second part, he's back in London, his uh, time's moved on, he's living with his partner, his male partner, and the third part is he needs to go back and sort out the family affairs, and his parents are old, and the power has been taken away from his father by then. His father's, you know, losing his mind. and Yeah. So it's, it's a really beautiful novel. It's beautifully written. He sort of writes with a poetic phrase from time to time. There's a lot that goes unsaid, which is kind of beautiful as well. At the at the beginning, what, what time period is it set? Probably 1990s, maybe 80s. 
does meet up with Ali again in part mm-hmm. three. Mary Ali's married to a woman yeah, um, and doesn't want to talk about the past. No, I, I think that power dynamic between the son and the father sounds really interesting. Yeah, the father was a powerful figure at, at, yeah, and in the village. Yeah. yeah, And then at the end, he's a dribbling mess. So, yeah, um, yeah it's always... Good to see the protagonist come back as a big person and the the monsters of their past are little persons. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Shrunk and their claws are taken out. Fantastic. Thank you. So that's Other Names for Love by Tamor Sumeru. Thank you, Rob. Bye. A question that we ask all our guests is a writing question, and this is going to be interesting coming from someone who actually teaches writing for a job. Um, So we would love to hear some advice or top tips that you have for aspiring writers, storytellers that are listening to the podcast now. Yeah, but uh, people will give you rules. Like like the thing that that I used to really believe in really firmly was – like you've got to you got to kind of set yourself a schedule and a routine and you've got to write 500 words a day or write for an hour a day or a thousand words a day or whatever works for you and you know you've got to do it first thing in the morning or you've you know you've got to do it um like in this regular way like and i think that that's about creating a practice and a thing that you can go back to when like when you're in a knot and i think that that's really true but i also think that uh like different things work for different people and the more important thing is to like try a bunch of things out and make sure you you reflect afterwards and think, oh, did that work for me? Uh, and if something does work for you, you know, make sure you check back in a month later and think, oh, does that still work for me or do I have to try something else out? Like there's there's no point sort of torturing yourself um, when you're doing something that, you know, even for uh, someone who's published 10 books, like no one is asking you, no one is making you do it. Um, you could never do it again uh, if you if you really wanted to. It's always you know answering some like inner compulsion to write, and so you might as well like figure out a way that it works for you and keep asking yourself um, you know what's working for you and what doesn't, and like give yourself goals and things like that, but don't torture yourself. Like always, like there, there are elements of it that are always going to be like pulling teeth, and so like you'll come up against them no matter what. And so all, whatever you can do to make it like smooth and fun for yourself is worth paying attention to. I think also people should track down your uh, Kill Your Darlings um, article about the diary taking, the what do you remember and what do you remember seeing and doing that every day for four minutes. I've been doing that. and it's been, Yeah, yeah, I did it. Yeah, super helpful. Um, to be honest, it is a little bit um, depressing when you have a week of work from home and unfortunately the diary is looking very similar <laughs> each day. But <laughs> I should say I can't take credit for that exercise. I wrote, wrote about it in that article, but it's a Linda Barry exercise. Um, but, yeah, like I love the division between like, yeah, what what you did the day before and what you what you saw, like what you noticed. But, I, yeah, I didn't really realise that in this time when so many of us are doing the work from home thing, like could you imagine, I wonder if people, if anyone would have successfully done that four-minute diary in the pandemic and how grim that would have been as an exercise. No. Do you but find it, is... it helpful though? No, absolutely. And I think it's good because on the surface, you might think that remembering and seeing are the same thing. But when you um, force yourself to think about that, there's inevitably totally different things. And I think, you know, if you're writing a first person book, it's such a good reminder that, you know, the types of things that people notice and not notice. So, yeah, it was a really great exercise I recommend people to do. 
Um, now we have a shout out question. Can listeners uh, connect with you uh, on socials or any events? Uh, no. <laughs> my, um, no, I'm not on any socials. And also, uh, like, I just did my last event a couple of weeks ago for this book coming up. But uh, what they can, I mean, they can email me. Uh, so I have a website, which is ronniescott.au. I did that. I don't know if you did this with your author website, if you have an author website, but there was that thing a few months ago where they, like, released that top-level domain. So you can not, like, not just have like johnobutler.com.au, you can have johnobutler.au. And I read mm. an article in the ABC talking about how you should, like it gave all of these, like some flimsy and some good reasons that I can't even remember now about why you should do that. So my, and, and then it seems like nobody else in Australia really <laughs> did that. But I my website is ronniescott.au and you can uh, like email me through the website. And there is like an events page. So if I ever do an event again, I'll put it on that list. Amazing. And um, do you have anyone, any uh, any shout outs that you'd like to give to LGBTQA plus artist books, uh, art shows, organisations, social media accounts or anything that you think that we should check out? Yeah, I like I sort of want to celebrate um, like a book that's being celebrated at the moment. And so I'm sort of just glowing and thinking about it because it's this amazing novel. Um, and it's on my mind. Uh, it's called Losing Face by George Haddad. And it was just long listed for the Miles Franklin yesterday at the time of this recording. Uh, and I think, and he was named a Sydney Morning Herald Best Young Novelist today as well. And so it's just been this very cool, like 36 hours of, you know, vicarious joy for fans of that very like, complicated, beautiful and interesting book about um like yeah, it is about queer stuff but it's really about masculinities and about um and femininities as well and just um yeah like very kind of heady and complicated uh kind of sexual politics stuff um uh about growing up and it handles it in such a sort of thoughtful surprising and complex way and it's just very cool to be seeing that book uh yeah be celebrated you know, a, a, a bit of time after its publication. So I would send people to that. Losing Face by George Haddad. And such a page turner. It's like got lots of, yeah, it's, it's a very entertaining book as well as, um, yeah, really poignant. Um, and the closing question today is, what is your hope for the LGBTQI plus community? Uh, or communities, I, I should yeah. say. Uh, oh, man, I, I think that I would just hope I truly don't have an answer for this question. I like I would say that that as a writer, I I would hope that more um that more and more people um than ever before, you know, at all times perpetually into the future feel um you know compelled to tell interesting and complex stories and do interesting and complex experiments with art uh, and you know that that the role that that plays in the way that we think about representation and identity um, and life like continues to complicate and, and pluralize, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I feel like that's not a very good answer to your question, but I don't have a very good answer to your question. No, I think it's great. No, it's really interesting. That's that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Ronnie, uh, for your time. And everyone out there, you have to get Shirley by Ronnie Scott. It's an amazing book. Um, you will not regret it. Thanks for being a great interviewer. Nice to talk to you. Please check out our show notes on Words and Nerds, Blarney Books and Art and rwrmcdonald.com for links, reviews and the interview transcript. 
Until next time, this is QWS Podcast.